Welcome to Crozier Cast. This is your host, Bishop James Wall, the Diocese of Gallup. And today we have a very special guest, and thankfully you don't get to have to hear me talk nearly as much as we usually do. And so our guest today is Dr. Helen Free. And so, Helen, thanks for, for being on uh, Crozier Cast. Thanks for having me, Bishop. You're welcome. My pleasure. So could you tell us a little bit about your, yourself? Well, uh, I'm the youngest of six children. Uh, my uh, parents were converts to the faith, and we came into the church when I was just seven years old in a little church in uh, Three Rivers, Michigan. And uh, I had to grow into the faith because it was a crazy time in the church, and I really didn't have much, much doctrine. And so uh, it wasn't until I went to the University of Dallas for my undergraduate that I actually realized that people went to daily mass because they wanted to go to daily mass. Yeah. It was something enjoyable for them. <laughs> I had friends going to mass. It was a Monday or Tuesday. And I said, where are you going? And they said, we're going to mass. And I said, is it a holy day of obligation? And they said, no. And I said, why are you going to mass? And they said, well, we want to go to mass. I said, oh, it's kind of novel. So I went to daily mass with them and I thought that that was a, a pretty great experience. People start going to daily mass. And uh, so I started coming into the into my faith more when I was at the University of Dallas. Um, but it wasn't until I went to Baylor University for my PhD that I really had to, to own my faith because it was beautiful to be surrounded at, at UD with great Catholic friends, uh, just really wholesome, upright peer group um, that helped me to you know, begin to learn more devotions and going to daily mass. Sure. But when I went to Baylor, which is America's largest and oldest Baptist university in Waco, Texas, turns out I was just about the only Catholic who was, who was there. Um, it was certainly the only Catholic that was practicing the faith. And class after class, uh, the professor, I mean, in literature, uh, theology always comes up. And it's almost always Catholic theology. Sure. And so even the professor would say, well, I'm not sure what the Catholic Church teaches about that. Well, Helen's Catholic. Helen, what does the church teach about? <laughs> Fill in the blank. And I would just you know, be sweating bullets thinking, I don't quite know for sure. So, But I said, I'll find out. So I'd go and I'd find out. And That's always a good answer. I don't know what I'll very, find out. And, and I think people need to remember that, too. If, if you don't know it precisely, it's, it's okay to say, well, I, I don't know, but I can get back to you. Let me find out. Yeah. Well, first I had a, a good priest there, and I'd often call up my, my friend Father Timothy and say, Father Timothy, this happened. What, what does the church teach? And so he would, he would catechize me. So I really had to, had to uh, learn the faith very well and also to, to practice it well because, sadly, there were still many Baptists that thought that I was going to hell sure. because I was a Catholic. And, um, so it was, in some sense, a kind of a lonely time in graduate school because you know, I didn't have that many friends um, and didn't have that many dates. I remember one Protestant man asked me, uh, said, Helen, would you ever consider dating a Protestant? And I said, oh yeah, absolutely I'd consider dating a Protestant. But then the invitation never came <laughs> to, to go out with them. So well, said, they oh. probably thought too, I mean, maybe, maybe they were going to do missionary dating, they were going to get you to convert, which <laughs> was, so. wasn't going to happen. Yeah, yeah, maybe so. But, um, but I grew up in an intellectual family. My father has now passed away. He was an English professor, um, and he gave up uh, a tenured position actually at the University of North Carolina um, to enter into seminary. That wasn't Catholic seminary. It was Anglican uh, Episcopalian seminary. 
But uh, he moved all of our family from Raleigh, North Carolina, up to South Bend, Indiana, which at the time, the Episcopal Church, I guess, was sending their men to the Catholic sem seminary there at Notre Dame. And so Dad moved all of us up to South Bend, Indiana. I was just a little baby. But then the uh, bishop of Raleigh, the Episcopal bishop of Raleigh, he, he pulled his, his approval or his, uh, I guess, authorization for Dad to be a candidate, uh, really because my dad had been too outspoken over uh, the Roe v. Wade decision yeah. in the 70s. Um, him and my mom strongly felt that the churches needed to come together and speak as one about the evil that was that had just been uh, committed uh, by the Supreme Court. But I, I guess the bishop didn't see it in the same way. And so my father was pegged as a troublemaker and, and asked not to continue his candidacy. So we were up in Indiana. Praise God that he did Praise that. God. Yeah, yeah the, the, all works of providence, all the works of providence. But, um, but he, he got, God bless him, he, he saw the need for education, the importance of, of educating, and that the, you know, the world changes from, from the home out. And he wanted to make sure that we, the six of us, had a, a really good education. And hard to afford that on a, on a teacher's salary. Sure. So he gave up his college-level teaching to teach at our local uh, Great Books High School in South Bend. And so I had the great joy of my dad being my, my humanities teacher for about two or three years. Uh, and he was, he was an amazing dad and, a, and an amazing teacher. Uh, and just just really excellent. So we always had a, a great love of learning and particularly of, of literature in the family. Um, and I'll come into Tolkien because uh, my love of Tolkien began just as a little girl because we would we would read to, uh, Tolkien out loud um, as a family. My, my dad and my mom would take turns reading The Hobbit to us. The Hobbit. So did they take turns reading the trilogy as well? And the trilogy. Yeah, that's we began a, with The Hobbit. That's a lot of reading. It was a lot of reading. No, it was, it was wonderful. We'd go yeah. on these, these uh, family camping trips to Natural Bridge State Park in Slade, Kentucky, and we had this uh, cabin and has to be screened in there in the south because of sheer number of bugs. But I remember so clearly being out in the screen porch with the sound of the cicadas and just the humming of like the night air, fireflies in the you know the mountain, uh, the mountain darkness, and then my my dad or my mom reading the Lord of the Rings until we all started you know drifting off drifting off to sleep. Um, so it just it was a, a work that was really important, you know, really to the whole family growing up. Um, in fact. My mother had never read uh, Tolkien before she met my father. They married in 1967. Um, but Tolkien had been extremely important to my father and his his own uh, imaginative formation. Sure. And he wanted to share that with his his new bride. And so uh, they were reading Tolkien out loud on their honeymoon. And my mom, they're driving. My mom describes that she said they're, they're driving over the hills of Kentucky, and uh, she gets to the part, the Bridge of Casadum. Um, towards the end of the Fellowship of the Ring. And she's really been drawn into this story. And Gandalf is there on the bridge facing the Balrog. And then, uh, and then he falls. You know, he falls and, and he apparently dies. And my mom said she shut the book and she was crying. She was sobbing. She was just sobbing. And my dad thought she was sobbing because Gandalf had died. Um, but my mom in her heart was sobbing because she thought, what type of man have I married um, <laughs> who so loves this book? 
in which this incredible character has just been killed off by the author. And so my dad said, Ruth, you've got to keep reading, you've got to keep reading. And she said it was one of her first major acts of, of trust in her young married life to, she said, reopen that book and see you know, how in the world could things be brought right again after Gandalf has fallen to his death in, in Casa Doom. So anyways, she was very happy when, when things did come right, and she found out the dad was a good man. Yeah, I decided things um, backwards, unfortunately, and I wish I would have done this way. But I watched the movies, and then I read the books. And I wish I would have read the books first because mm -hmm. of the imagination. Right. And uh, because when you, you watch the movies first, then read the books, I think it restricts your imagination. And you, you have these, um, you know, Ian McKellen's always going to be what, what uh, Gandalf looks like. And, and um, I, would rely, I would have rather relied on some of the sketches from Tolkien. And, right. And, um, but, yeah, so, um, yeah. So you're, now you, you studied... Or that was your your area. Tolkien was your area in for when you did your PhD, correct? He was, yeah. What did you What did you do that on? What was it? Is this a specific point or aspect? Well, I came to Tolkien late in my in my doctoral work um, because I initially began my program as an Americanist because I was really interested in Faulkner, and so I had thought that I that's where my, my focus was going to be. And so I did a lot of my coursework on 20th century, 19th and 20th century American literature, and then uh, 20th century uh, British literature. And so I really was moving into more of the, the modern period. So I was a, an Americanist, a modernist. Um, but when I got to thinking about the, the sheer amount of time you have to spend on your dissertation, I was feeling more and more oppressed by the idea of having to focus on Faulkner so much, because Faulkner is... He's a really dark 20th century American writer. Um, and I frankly got depressed, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to you know, live with this man for years. <laughs> I don't know if I really want to do that. And I remember going to a, a lecture by uh, Ralph Wood, who was a, a professor of mine at Baylor, a fine man. And it was a, right when the movies were coming out, 2001 or something like that. And it was a lecture he was giving on on Tolkien. And it suddenly dawned on me, I thought, wait a second, he's giving an academic lecture on this book that has been so part of my life and heart and faith life and imaginative life and everything. Uh, and here's giving an academic lecture in an academic setting on this work. And I suddenly realized I could actually focus on Tolkien as my subject of my, of my uh, doctoral dissertation. And so I spoke to him about it because it was late in my you know, late in my graduate career, and we looked at you know, how could I take some more classes to be able to focus on Tolkien and what was I interested in with Tolkien. Um, and what I was really interested in with Tolkien, I still continue to be fascinated with, is he, he is a modernist. I mean, he is, he is squarely within 20th century modern British literature. Um, and yet he is so incredibly different from all the other authors um, of, of his time, both in the worldview he presents and the way in which he writes, this entire secondary world um, that he creates of Middle Earth. And I thought, well, well, how is, what's going on here? Because, you know, he himself, he, he dismissed practically all literature from Shakespeare on. My husband, John, and I get a kick because he loved, John loved Shakespeare. Um, and Tolkien 
hated Shakespeare. He thought he considered Shakespeare a modernist. And so Tolkien kind of dismissed everyone from Shakespeare on as a modernist, um, which was just not a, it's not a compliment from Tolkien to be called a modernist. But um, what I was interested in with Tolkien is that there's a type of, of bridge that is, I think, is, is, is part of his literature because within his literature you have so many old elements um, that he takes from uh, both uh, classical Greek mythology, but even more so ancient, ancient Norse mythology, the, the northern myths, the Germanic myths. That's really what fired uh, Tolkien's imagination, much more so than the Greeks. Um, but he takes this, uh, this whole pool of, of mythology and of story that exists from uh, simply like fairy tale times yeah. um, into early Anglo-Saxon literature, um, early medieval literature, and he's able to meld it into a, a modern form, which is the novel. Um, he doesn't write you know, poetry. He's not writing a, a ballads. Um, he writes a novel. He writes a story, which includes, of course, elements of you know, poetry and song. But at, simply as the form, the novel is a, is a modern form of, of storytelling. Um, but for a, for a modern audience, for a contemporary audience, he's able to take these themes that many people have dismissed in his own time and bring them back to life into, into a, a really living, strong form of, uh, of existence for, for his readers. And what I mean by that is his whole view of, of a providential world order. Yeah. One of the things that I saw when I was reading American literature was just how dark it is. Um, and if you read contemporary literature, and by contemporary I mean really from early 20th century, maybe even late uh, 19th century into the present time, if you read that, the, the worldview that the authors present is almost always very despairing, very dark. Um, it's uh, very individualistic. It's always the individual who faces these, uh, these, these odds against, not, you can't really call it a deity, but in some sense when you're looking at the great myths, it's always... Man versus man, man versus God, in, in one way or another. Um, and so the stories that are told are a man versus God, but God, of course, takes different forms, like nature or fate. Um, and the, the modern author can't really see past how the individual can overcome fate, how the individual can, through his or her own power, uh, achieve a type of power over fate. And so it, things increasingly become very fatalistic in, in literature. Um, and Tolkien takes that view of fate and it, with this great knowledge of what the, what the early Christians had done and looking at the kind of the pagan world that, uh, that early Christian England was, was arising from, he's able to see that there's something that happened in early Anglo-Saxon culture slash literature, which is very akin to what's happening in our own, you know, almost post-Christian entering into neo-pagan sure. culture, uh, and it has to do with this 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 area of uh, the human will, human free will. It, it is there free free will at all, um, but human will versus the gods or the god. Um, so, looking at it in terms of again, not the Christian god, but forces that are beyond our uh, beyond our our powers. Um, and there was a there was a word in Anglo-Saxon literature. This is all coming back kind of to, to what I did my dissertation on. 
uh, but it's background story for you. There's a word in Anglo-Saxon literature which is called weird, W-Y-R-D, and it's the it's the original word from which we get our modern word weird, W. E-I-R-D, did I say that? E-I-R-D, thank yeah. you. Um, W-E-I-R-D, um, which does not mean anymore what it once did. But Shakespeare uses it in the older sense when he talks about the three weird sisters. He's not talking about people who are kind of odd with you know crazy hair sure. and don't quite fit into the <laughs> normal and popular culture. Uh, Shakespeare is using the older sense of weird, which meant fate. Um, and so you, you talked about, like Beowulf looks at his... Uh, the, the weird that is laid out for him, his fate. But uh, the early Christian Anglo-Saxon authors began to change the word weird, and at times it means fate, and at times it means providence. So you have the same word, weird, which can mean two different things, sure. fate, or it means providence, which are two really, really different things. Um, but Tolkien uses that very same concept in his own development of, of the world in, in Middle-earth because at times it is, it is, seems like it's faded, um, but at other times it's very clear that it is, it's providential, and you see that very much in what happens in the Silmarillion, this, this strange interchange between, uh, between things that happen to characters, so that it could be like the passive voice that's often used in Tolkien, and then the, they're being actively involved in the events that happened to them, sure. uh, which is their own free will. So I did my t- dissertation on uh, the title of it was Fate, Providence, and Free Will, Clashing Perspectives of World Order in Tolkien's Middle-Earth, uh, because it's in that area that I think that we moderns continue to, to really struggle. You know, where do we have free will? And uh, if we do have free will, how, how can we use it? Um, or... Are we simply fated to do things according to the, the the will of an other? You know, be it a god, be it circumstances, be it genetics at this point. And so we're very much entering into a, a neo-pagan time, um, which denies the uh, the existence of free will um, and begins to uphold the the power the power of things over over man. And of course when that happens, man begins to to diminish and sure. become simply a, a, a cog in a wheel, an object to be used by the forces of, of nature and the forces of... Pawn in a game. Exactly, yeah. Um, and that's not very pleasant. You know, it's not very pleasant. And I think that adds to the despairing nature of, of the world even right now. Hi, this is Bishop James Wall, and I want to thank you for joining us this week on Crozier Cast. As you heard, our special guest was Dr. Helen Free, and our topic was J.R.R. Tolkien and the impact that he's had on literature as well as on our society. This is one of three podcasts that we have with Helen, and I'm grateful that she agreed to sit down with us and speak about this great man. So please join us next week and the following week as we continue to talk about J.R.R. Tolkien with Dr. Helen Free. Take care and God bless.